The text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12. You may recall when I was here at the beginning of December, we focused on Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 and and Hebrews 12 verses 7 through 11. Well, this morning we're going to turn to Hebrews 12 verse 18 to 24. And keep in mind, if you recall, the race metaphor that comes up in the early part of the chapter, running the race of faith. We'll see how that also lies in the background of these verses this morning. So Hebrews 12, starting at verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkest and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Thus far, God's word. After the preaching of God's word, we'll sing together from hymn 69, all three stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you've ever traveled to the mountains, perhaps the Rocky Mountains or so, perhaps you'll remember, especially the first time, that moment when the mountains first come into view. You have your eyes fixed on the horizon, waiting, waiting for that first glimpse until finally, through your windshield, you see the hints of the peaks in the distance. And as you continue to drive, the mountains fill more and more of your field of vision until finally you're standing at the feet of the mountains and you're standing there amazed by their grandeur and by their majesty. You can imagine much the same kind of experience for the Israelites in the Old Testament time when they would set their feet towards Jerusalem for the various festivals at the temple. God called them to worship at the temple, and as they set their feet to Jerusalem, it took a long time, much longer than it takes for us, of course, to drive in our cars. But as they set their feet to Jerusalem, there was that moment when finally the hills around Jerusalem came into view. You can imagine the anticipation they would have felt. The destination was in sight, anticipation of celebrating the festival with God's people, of being in God's presence in his holy temple again. That first sight of the mountains would have ensured, yes, it's going to happen again. We're going to be with God again. We're going to celebrate the festival with God again. The goal was in sight. That's something of the picture that the author of Hebrews is drawing for us this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. He's been describing our life as a life in a race of faith. He's provided us with the strategy for this race. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and founder of your faith. And he's described the sufferings and the hardships in our life as ways in which God disciplines us, molds us, and shapes us in order for us to run the race with perseverance. Well, now we have a glimpse 
of the destination, a glimpse of the goal in our race of faith, we are running towards a mountain. And to illustrate the glory of this mountain, the author sets up a contrast. He wants to encourage us as believers that this race is worth running again, that the destination is much more glorious than we can even imagine. And he sets up this contrast between one mountain, Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Old Covenant, and Mount Zion, the mountain of the New Covenant. And Mount Zion far outweighs and far surpasses Mount Sinai of the Old Covenant. It was a special message, especially for the Jewish Christians to whom the author of Hebrews was speaking in particular at this time. You see, they were still attracted to all the rituals and the performances of the Old Covenant. They're still attracted to the sacrifices and found themselves returning to the old system that had been in place before Jesus Christ had come. And so the letter writer has been busy underlining to the people that it's so much more glorious in Jesus Christ than what they had in the Old Testament. And so he said, Jesus Christ is so much greater than the angels He's so much greater than Melchizedek, that high priest of Salem. He's so much greater than a man like Moses. He's much greater than any of the high priests who have gone on before. His blood is so much greater than the blood of bulls and goats. And now finally in Hebrews chapter 12, he comes to the the climax of his case. Mount Sinai pales in comparison to the glory of Mount Zion. The spiritual mountain towards which we are running in our race of faith is so much more glorious than that mountain the Israelites found themselves at in the Old Testament times. The new covenant in Christ's blood is so much greater and more glorious than the old covenant. That's the gospel we hear this morning. The new covenant, the glory of the new covenant in Jesus' blood is that we have come not to a mountain of death, but to a mountain of life. The glory of the new covenant is that we have come not to a mountain of death. We find ourselves first in verse 18 at the foot of that mountain, the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. That is, we're sitting there at Mount Sinai. Imagine for yourself that image of the Israelites encamped around Mount Sinai. They've been brought out of Egypt. God's delivered them from their status as slaves in Egypt. And he's brought them here to this mountain because he wants to establish a covenant with them. He wants to have a relationship with his people. And so they've pitched their tents at the foot of this mountain and they're going to wait for God to show them who he is. They're going to be God's kingdom of priests, we read together earlier, and a holy nation. They're going to be special in their relationship with God. But first God has to reveal just who he is. He has to demonstrate to the people who it is that they're entering into a relationship with. Just how holy and how powerful and majestic this God is who has delivered them from Egypt. Now to do that, he first has to teach the people how impure they really are. He has to set up a contrast between holy God and sinful people. So the people are there and camped around the the mountain and they have to purify themselves. For three days, they have to consecrate themselves to God. It's not possible for the people to come to God simply the way they are. There has to be purity. They can't come into the presence of a holy God without being purified. But even then, even having purified themselves, it wasn't enough. That mountain that could be touched, 
was not a mountain that could be approached. Mount Sinai could be touched. It was a physical mountain, but it could not be approached because God was unapproachable in his holiness. And so Moses sets these barriers at the foot of the mountain so that the people can't come close to Mount Sinai. The penalty for any disobedience, if anybody so much as touches even the smallest foothill at the foot of the mountain, they have to be stoned. Even if it's an animal that touches the mountain, it has to be killed. No defiled sinner can come near God's holiness and live. The message was clear simply from those preparations. The mountain that could be touched could not be approached. And now after demonstrating to the people just how impure they are, God appears on the mountain and it's an awe-inspiring sight. It's an awful and an awesome experience for the people of Israel. Did you hear that description from Exodus? Smoke billowing up from it like a giant furnace. The mountain trembling violently. Darkness, clouds, earthquakes, lightning, thunder, ear-splitting trumpet blasts. Must have been an incredible sight. The mountain that could be touched but could not be approached was burning with fire, was wrapped in thick darkness. The earth where the Israelites were standing was shaking with God's presence. What an awesome experience it must have been for them. But what a terrifying one as well. The people at the foot of the mountain are simply terrified with fear. They understand now just who this God is who's liberated them from Egypt, who this God is who wants to have a relationship with them as his people. They're struck with fear by his holiness and by their sinfulness. In fact, they actually ask God, please, don't speak to us anymore. We can't bear to hear the sound of your voice because you are Almighty God and we are sinful people. Now they understand that there can be only death for those who try to approach this holy God. If even animals, God's creatures who simply do his bidding, can't touch the mountain without being put to death, then how much more God's special creation, created in the image of God who had rejected that relationship, how much more could they not come into God's presence? The author of Hebrews says, even Moses is exceedingly afraid and trembling. Moses. Moses, the man of God, Moses, the one who had a special place, who spoke to God face to face, the one the author of Hebrews says he was faithful in all God's house, Moses, perhaps the greatest saint to have walked the face of the earth, Moses is trembling with fear at God's holiness. This was the mountain that the people of God had come to. An unapproachable mountain that inspired fear and terror. This is the mountain that the law was handed down from, that law we heard this morning. Imagine God's voice resounding with those words, those words of condemnation in many respects, that exposed sin. The people couldn't keep the covenant. The law couldn't do it on its own. In fact, It wasn't long thereafter that the people found themselves sinning, demanding that Moses, or sorry, Aaron, bring them and build them a golden calf. Not days after this awesome sight at Mount Sinai and the people have failed already. That was Mount Sinai. 
What's more, Mount Sinai was also the place where God instituted that old covenant. The bloodshed of bulls and goats and rams. It was only through death, through endless death, through endless leaders and leaders of blood that the people could continue to have a relationship with God. And even then, it was only once per year, the Day of Atonement, that the high priest, and only the high priest, could come into God's presence. There were all these barriers, these divisions between God and his people. The distance between God and his people never lessened. The mountain didn't become any more approachable. It was truly a mountain of death. That was Mount Sinai, the mountain that could be touched but could not be approached. But thanks be to God, because the mountain of death, death and bloodshed doesn't have the final word. Because the blood of all those bulls and goats, that endless bloodshed on the mountain pointed forward to the blood of our Savior shed on the cross. See, that blood was more than enough. That blood broke down those barriers that stood at the foot of the mountain and allowed mankind to push forward into God's presence. The mountain of death that was Sinai pointed forward to another mountain of death, Golgotha. The mountain of death on which the Son of God gave his life to open up the access to God himself. To remove that distance and the barriers between God and his people. You recall in the moment of his death on Good Friday, which we'll celebrate soon enough, the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. That was the symbol. The way to God was opened in the blood of Jesus Christ. The old mediated system, the old system of barriers and hurdles was destroyed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Death itself had been defeated and sinful man could now have complete and free access to the same holy and awesome God. The forerunner had blazed the trail. Now the reality that Christ's death ushered in is far more glorious than that awesome and terrifying sight at Mount Sinai. But how often we find ourselves back at the foot of that same mountain of Sinai. We find at Sinai something we can hold on to, something we can latch on to, something tangible. We yearn at times, don't we, for something physical, something that can be touched something physically impressive, something extraordinary. When you hear or you read Exodus 19, you think, what would it have been like to experience that extraordinary awe, those incredible feelings of seeing God's majesty and power displayed so vividly, the kind of feelings you get when you look up in awe at the grandeur of a mountain. Perhaps you think that if you could just see a tangible display of God's glory and his power, that your faith would be that much stronger? What if you were to have walked with Jesus as the disciples did, or put your hand in his side, or touched the nail marks in his hands like Thomas could? What if we could just see something real? Or maybe you find yourself back at the foot of Mount Sinai thinking that the laws and the regulations, which we've heard, are going to make it possible for you to enter into God's presence. 
This is such a temptation too, isn't it? We strive to be obedient. We strive to, to keep God's law because we think that somehow we can make ourselves acceptable in his sight. Somehow our good efforts to keep God's law will allow us to set foot on that holy mountain. But beware. Because the mountain of death can only and ever be a mountain of death. It can only be a mountain of shadows. The race cannot be run by exerting ourselves. The strength to run the race cannot be found by looking deeply into ourselves. We're only going to reach the finish line as we've seen by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. Only by fixing our eyes on our Savior are we going to be able to see the mountain that we are truly running towards. The mountain of life. Then we find ourselves leaving Mount Sinai, leaving the laws and the regulations as a way of gaining access to God and finding ourselves fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ and finding in him everything that is approachable, everything that gives us access to God. We are running to the mountain of life and the contrast couldn't be any more striking. We're not coming to the terrifying and dreadful Mount Sinai, but to the glory of Mount Zion. Sinai was a mountain that could be touched. It was a physical mountain, but it could not be approached. Zion is not a physical mountain. It cannot be touched, but by God's grace, it can be approached. Sinai was wrapped in clouds and thick darkness. Zion is the city of light. Sinai was a mountain of death. Zion is the mountain of life. Sinai was closed to everyone. Zion is open to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. This is the mountain. Mount Zion. That was the city, the hill on which the city of Jerusalem was built. It was the seat of David's throne. It was the royal city. The symbol of his kingship. And now, with the coming of the great son of David, this has become the eternal king mountain, royal mountain, where the son of God dwells as the eternal king. King Jesus welcomes his people into the heavenly city. Jerusalem. The earthly city of Jerusalem. That was that special place where the people of Israel lived with their God. That was the place where the temple was built. It was the place with mediated access to God. Only through the sacrifices could they go and enter into God's presence. Life in the earthly city of Jerusalem was still restricted to that old covenant. But now we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the fulfillment of the earthly city. The heavenly Jerusalem is the city of the living God. As the author of Hebrews tells us, the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. That is the mountain towards which we are running. Now earlier on, the author of Hebrews had warned his readers in chapter 10, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And at Mount Sinai, the power and majesty of this living God was on full display But at the end of the race of faith, we are welcomed into the city of this same living God. 
He's no less holy. He's no less majestic. He's no less pure. But he welcomes us into his royal city. It's the city that the pilgrims and sojourners of the Old Testament were looking forward to. The city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is the mountain we are approaching. And as we enter into the gates of that city, it's a festive and a joyful occasion. Just like the festivals for the Old Testament saints were a highlight, this is so much more glorious even than that. The city is packed with the, those who are celebrating life with God. Thousands upon thousands, an innumerable company of angels is gathered there in the royal city. And along with the angels, we see the, great, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. That is, those whom God has called his own, those whom he has adopted as his children, adopted as his heirs, they're all gathered together there in that holy city, that royal city, celebrating life with God. The church victorious, celebrating with the heavenly servants. The church celebrating in the very presence of the living God himself. God the judge of all, we're told. The judge is living in this city. The judge welcomes us into this city. And we can come into his presence not because he's relaxed his holiness, not because he's lessened the requirements of a relationship with him, not because he accepts our impurity. He's still the judge. He's still the holy God who spoke from Mount Sinai. He's still the living God. He only permits those into his presence without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, pure and perfect. And so how is it possible that we can come into the presence of this judge? Well, the judge himself declares us righteous. The judge himself gives us the not guilty verdict. Not guilty, pure and blameless, without spot or wrinkle in Jesus Christ. And then we join, as the author says, the spirits of just men made perfect. That is, we come there into the holy city welcomed by those who have gone on before us. The Old Testament saints, that cloud of witnesses from verse 1 of chapter 12. Men and women like Noah and Moses and Abraham and Rahab and Samson, and Gideon, and David were welcomed there by these saints who have been made perfect through the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who have been declared righteous by the judge himself. And they're perfect too, because they've been transformed into the image of their Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's only fitting, of course, that we end with Jesus himself, or that the author of Hebrews ends with Jesus, because we have come, when we come into that city, when we come to that mountain, we've come to Jesus himself. Because we can only come to Mount Zion through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can only come into the presence of the living God through the mediator, Jesus Christ. He's the go-between. He's the one who brings us from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, only in Jesus Christ. He's the one who has removed those barriers between God and man. And his blood, his sprinkled blood, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the blood of Abel at the very beginning testified against Cain. That spilled blood cried out from the ground in condemnation of Cain. 
but Christ's blood, sprinkled there on the mercy seat of the covenant, sprinkled on our foreheads symbolically in baptism, declares us free from guilt and pollution from sin. That sprinkled blood washes us clean from all impurity, makes us spotless, white as snow. His death gives us access to the mountain of life. What a glorious vision the author of Hebrews holds before our eyes this morning. It's a reality that is far more impressive, far more glorious than even the sight of thunder and lightning and earthquakes and clouds and darkness surrounding a mountain like Mount Sinai. As we run the race of faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus, we see through him a vision of the destination of the finish line for our heavenly reward. This is the prize that awaits us, and it is certain. Perhaps you noticed the verb tense in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come. It's not just a future reality, but it's something we have already here and now. In Jesus Christ, the victory is ours. In Jesus Christ, we have already arrived at this mountain of life. We simply need to run in faith, knowing that the victory is secure, that the destination is in our grasp through faith in Christ. Our names are written in heaven already when we are in Christ. Yes, we belong to the church here and now. We belong to this body of Christ here and now. This is the body of Christ. And yet there is another reality too, a heavenly reality. We are also members of the church triumphant. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, of those who have run the race before us, who have gone on before us, but who celebrate with us the victory in Jesus Christ. We belong among them too. Our citizenship is in the heavenly Jerusalem. So what difference does it make? How does that make you run? Does it change anything that you're running towards Mount Zion and not towards Mount Sinai? Well, yes, it does. It makes all the difference in the world because we are not running to a mountain that cannot be approached. We are not running to a mountain that has barriers, that has no access God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still a consuming fire. And yet, he may be approached through Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not a kingdom of fear and of trembling, but a kingdom of joy and of thankfulness. And what's more, the kingdom is already here. Now. Christ's kingdom is here this morning. Christ's kingdom is there when you go to your work tomorrow morning. Christ's kingdom is here and now. We already enjoy open, free access to the living God. Heaven stands open. We are in God's presence through Jesus' blood. We are free to present our requests, our petitions to God boldly because Jesus sits there at his side interceding for us coming before the Father for us. We don't need to tremble in fear when we approach God in prayer. We may simply present our requests as children, confidently. 
We don't need to tremble in fear as we come together each and every Sunday morning. When we come into the presence of the judge, we are here this morning in the presence of the judge himself, of the living God, of that God who spoke in thunder and lightning, who shook the earth with his very voice. And it's here, in this ordinary weekly gathering of the believers, that we experience a foretaste, a preview of the future reality To outsiders, to the world, it looks like a simple gathering of like-minded individuals. But in reality, this we are enjoying this morning is something far more glorious and far more incredible. Far more glorious even than the power and majesty displayed at Mount Sinai. Sinful people, you know yourselves, sinful people are invited into the presence, are invited to approach a holy and awesome God. We are in God's presence now. Heaven stands open. We stand here, we sit here, we sing here in the presence of God himself, surrounded by an innumerable company of angels, surrounded by the cloud of witnesses itself, and heaven stands open, and we enjoy God's presence here and now in a special way each and every Sunday. We experience that perfect fellowship with God. We get a sneak preview, a foretaste of the reality that we will enjoy for eternity with our Father. Isn't it amazing? This is the reality that Christ has won for us. This is the reality that already exists today. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God The goal of our finish, the goal of our race, the finish line lies ahead of us, yes. The mountain of life is on the horizon and we're getting closer. We are coming to a mountain that can be approached. We are coming to the city of the living God and the gates are wide open. Can you see them? Amen.